All right, you, we're going to start right with the handout that says uh, the tabernacle. It's the one that's a picture. Because today, the writer of Hebrews is going to draw some parallels between the tabernacle as it looked um, in the Old Testament and, and really what it means now that Jesus has, has died and been resurrected. So this is a picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And just to give you a kind of a perspective, I brought, I brought a book it has pictures in it that I'll pass around. And it's, it's got kind of a, a model of the tabernacle in it. So you can have just an idea of what, what it might have looked like. The part that's on the paper, the diagram you have, is just this middle part, just the building part. The actual tabernacle also included this large courtyard. And outside of what's called the holy place, there would have been an entrance gate coming in from the east, there's a large altar right here. There's a, what's called a laver, a basin for washing, washing up. And then there's the, the actual tabernacle right here. And that's the part that I've got diagrammed on your paper. And um, as you enter the tabernacle, you enter, if you notice that it's the, the top of the page is to the north, you enter through curtains from the east. And sometimes in scripture, that's, those are called the first curtain. Uh, so if you ever hear the term the first veil or the second veil, this one is the first veil. And it's, it's a really big room. It's 15 by 30. So that's in 15 feet by 30 feet by 15 feet tall. So that's a pretty good sized room. It's only got three things in it. It's as, as the priest enters, on his left is a, a large candelabra. And on his right is a table that's got bread on it. It's got one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the scripture will say that the loaves are supposed to be laid out in rows. And, and some pictures, you will see them in what we would consider rows. But other pictures, you see them in stacks. So I don't know what the Israelites back then would have thought a row was. But there's definitely 12 pieces of bread on that table, plus some frankincense. Two cups of frankincense. And then right in front of the second veil here is an altar of incense that was that was kept burning and i think there's one of these tabs that i've got in here is an actual photograph of an altar of incense made out of limestone that that is from israel and we know it's uh an israeli um a hebrew altar because of these horns on the top that was those no they're they're uh carved out of stone but they're called horns the altars god god told them to put horns on their altars and that's what was meant and when the priest would sprinkle blood often he would be told to sprinkle the horns of the altar sprinkle the base or the ground around the altar there were there were different rituals at different times so this is the kind the one inside the tabernacle of course was not made out of limestone like this picture is it was made out of gold after that altar of incense then there's a second veil and that second veil gets you into the holy of holies so this part in the front is called the holy place this part in the back is called the most holy place or the holy of holies and it only has one piece of furniture in it and that is the ark of the covenant sometimes called the ark of the testimony and it has the lid that is called either the lid of atonement or the mercy seat and it's the lid that has the cherubim above it this particular area was a 15 by 15 by 15 cube Perfect, perfect cube. 
All right, so let's, starting with that, let's read what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So he's, he's just reminding them of what was there. And it's interesting, if you look there, he said, it, it, he seemed to say that the holy place, which was this most holy place part, the holy of holies back here, he seems to say that it had both the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant in it. If you look at what he said in verse 4, anybody listening to, to the writer in Hebrews would instantly know that that altar of incense was not in the Holy of Holies. And it would have been that obvious to them. So if you go back and look really carefully at what it says, it says that the most holy place has an altar of incense. And that phraseology lets you know how deeply the writer of Hebrews truly understood the purpose of that altar of incense. You see, once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he was not to dress in his, in his priestly robes. Like, you know, normally, he had a breastplate of jewels and, and a blue tunic with pomegranate balls all around it. I mean, really fancy stuff and a headdress and everything. On that day, he was just to dress in plain linen, a plain linen robe. Um, ultimate humility. And when he entered it, look at the very first thing. He actually would go in. Most of us think that he would go into that room once on that day, but that was not the case. He went in like three or four times during the day. And so if you look in Leviticus 16, 12, and 13, you can see what the very first thing he had to do the first time he went in that room that year. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so he will not die. So the very first thing he did that day was he would take his little pot of incense. He would fill it up at this altar and carry it in with him. And the smoke from that incense would shield him from the glory of the Lord so that he would not die. And I apologize for my voice. I'm just really sick. So fortunately, I think today is a, re a shorter lesson than usual. So hopefully I'll make it through. Every other day of the year, you know, obviously the, n nobody was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, but the, hi the high priest and the, and the regular priests would enter the holy place every day and, and do the things that needed to be done there. Well, as they moved around, though, this had to be set up and taken down. So certainly workers and people who did this had to 
being around and about? That's a great question. The question was, but Gail, they kept moving this tent around and setting it up and taking it down. Didn't other people have to help do this? I mean, the high priest couldn't do that by himself. These are huge gold columns and things. And you're absolutely right. The difference was they, that the way they knew they were supposed to take it down was the Shekinah glory left. Okay. Once that left, it was nothing but a tent. And at that point, certainly not any old Israelite could touch it, but there were, that was the job of the tribe of Levi to take that up. And they had certain people responsible for certain things. Some were, some of the families had to do the furnishings and some of the families had to do the, you know, the pillars and things. So, and, and then once they had it reset up, the Shekinah glory would basically kind of wait and they would, when it would stop, they would stop, set up wherever they were, back off and the Shekinah glory would come and re-enter the Holy of Holies. So as they, but as these priests entered the holy place during every day of the year, you can see that this altar of incense here was still shielding the Holy of Holies. So the writer of Hebrews was absolutely correct in linking that altar with this particular Ark of the Covenant. As Christians, we are so accustomed to entering God's presence freely because of the grace that we've been given through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we forget how holy God is and how terrible and awesome his presence is. The other interesting thing about the writer's description is his description of the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Here he says that Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments, the, the golden jar of manna, and the and Aaron's staff that budded. But if you actually look back in 1 Kings, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple, it specifically says the only thing in that Ark was the Ten Commandments. The reason that we believe that the, that the manna and the staff were also in there is because of the, a couple of passages in Exodus and Numbers. The first one is in Exodus 16, 32 and 34. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna, that's about two quarts, and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it may be kept. And then in Numbers 17.10, the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so they will not die. So obviously, the Hebrew Christians thought that the ark might that the ark itself contained the manna and the staff, even though it doesn't exactly say that in Scripture. That was obviously tradition. So now Marge might ask me, "Well, why don't they just go look and see what's in there? You know, he's in there once a year. Peek, <laughs> see what? Well, the reason is because at the time that the Hebrew Christians lived, there was no ark of the covenant anymore in the temple." It did not exist anymore. You see, when when the um, Israel when Jerusalem was conquered at the time of the Babylonian conquest 
in 587 BC, the Babylonians took and or destroyed the ark. Okay, there is a lot of, you know, stories abounding, you know, it got, you know, buried by Templar masons and, you know, is, is hidden in secret somewhere and there's and there's inscriptions in Rome where where it where where there's pictures of what supposedly looked like the Ark of the Covenant being carried off into Roman captivity. But you know what, and as far as I can tell, none of these theories hold any water what's whatsoever. In fact, there's also one that says that it's actually buried under the Temple Mount, you know, that it was buried there by rabbis. But I don't think any of that holds any water at all. And one of the reasons that I don't, for the most part, I, I think it's just too much Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff, you know. But but for the, the only one that seemed even remotely credible was the story where you actually have triumphal inscriptions in Rome. Now, I thought, well, the Romans, they conquered, you know, they conquered that area. They could have carried, found it and carried it off. But but we ha we know for a fact that when General Pompey went in and um, uh, conquered Jerusalem and actually destroyed Jerusalem in, seven, in AD 70. This was just 20 or 30 years after the book of Hebrews was written. He demanded to be allowed into the Holy of Holies. Well, that shows how much he knew. If the Shekinah glory had actually been in there, he'd have been dead meat, right? But we know the Shekinah glory was not there. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. He went in, came out, said he didn't see what the big deal was. It was just an empty room. So um, actually, um, rabbinical tradition says that that particular temple, the Holy of Holies in that temple, in Herod's temple, was not actually empty, but that it had a slab of stone in it. It's about three fingers deep. And that that slab is called the Eben Shethea, which means stone of drinking. The, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Jar of Men, and Aaron's staff had long since disappeared by the time of the Hebrew Christians. So they, like us, are dependent on historical records and tradition for knowing what was there before. So let's continue in Hebrews 9 with, with verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that the people had committed in ignorance. So we know the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, screened from the ark by the smoke of incense, and the only reason he was to enter it at all was to perform that ritual of atonement for the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. All right. It, he had to go in because he had to sprinkle blood from a bull and blood from a goat onto this altar to purify it. And we looked in an earlier at an earlier lesson about the fact that he was purifying it from the sins of the people, that he was purifying it because it sat amidst a sinful people. And we, have, as Christians, you know, we just take so much for granted. Look at the end of verse 7. He was atoning on this most holy day of atonement for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You see, the law never provided for atonement for intentional sin. The penalty for intentionally breaking the law was almost always death. 
these sacrifices and these elaborate sacrificial system that the Israelites had were for unintentional sins. It was for when you sinned by an act of omission or you sinned and you didn't realize it and then you realized it later, you would bring a sacrificial offering for your sin. No wonder men fell short of the law. You know, the sacrifices couldn't even cover their intentional sins. It was only the unintentional ones. And that gives us a fresh perspective on Jesus' sacrifice. Because we have all sinned intentionally. And under the law, which is a holy and just law and is of God and has not changed, under the law, we are all doomed to die. We owe our lives for our intentional sins. We aren't to die for our accidental sins. They could have been atoned for under the law. But we are to die for our intentional sins. And under the law, there was no mercy and no forgiveness. Because your life is already owed for your own sins, under the law, your life is forfeit. It is no longer yours. Jesus was the only one who never intentionally sinned. He is the only one who had a life free from sin and, and was not forfeit already to pay a debt that was already owed. And therefore, he alone had a life that could be donated, a life that could be given in ransom for our debt. And he had a choice. He didn't have to do it. He had a choice. And he chose to give his life on our behalf, not just for our ignorant and unintentional sin, but for the times that we have chosen to sin. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out that the tabernacle and the annual priestly ritual of atonement is offering a parable to us. It's an object lesson, and a lesson in understanding the real meaning behind Jesus' sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. And this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So as, first as, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing, meaning as long as that first law was in a covenant was in effect, man could not enter God's presence. There was no way for common man to enter the most holy place. And that's because even after that high priest made us ceremonially clean, we were only clean on the outside. Our inner selves, our inner consciences were unchanged. Sin never let go of our lives. Verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Some of your Bibles may actually say when Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, rather than of the good things that are already here, and either translation is acceptable given the Greek. 
Christ is the high priest of the good things to come that have already started with his death and resurrection. Jesus did not enter an earthly tabernacle made by the hands of man. Instead, he entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the perfect one, the one where God's throne is now. Did you ever realize there was a heavenly, heavenly tabernacle? I, I, I don't picture a tabernacle in heaven, but apparently there is one. And apparently that's why God made such a big deal when he gave Moses the instructions of how to build the earthly one, because it, was a, a, it actually was a copy of the heavenly one. And so we have a whole lot to learn from studying that earthly one because it can tell us what that heavenly tabernacle is about, what that spiritual reality is about. Continuing in verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves did he enter, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The high priest could enter the most holy place only when he was performing the ritual of atonement using the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus entered that heavenly tabernacle carrying his own real blood, innocent blood with which he had ransomed our lives. And he bought us back from death with his own blood. Now the blood of the bull and the goat sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant once a year by that high priest made the people ceremonially clean from sin. That's clean from being spiritually dead, right? That's what sin would be. Anyone who came in contact with a dead body would get sprinkled with the ashes of a red heifer mixed with water. And that would make them ceremonially clean from physical death. Okay? And if those physical rituals that were brought about by the death of an animal could cleanse us physically and spiritually in accordance with God's law, how much more powerful is the cleansing brought about by the death of God's own son? That's what the writer's saying. The death of Christ doesn't just make us ceremonially clean. It doesn't just clean us on the inside, outside, but it changes us on the inside. It, it's not a moment in time cleansing that disappears the very next moment we conceive a sin. It's an ongoing, continual existence in grace in which we are declared clean and our hearts are changed so we can begin to live in a new way and we can begin to learn what it really means to be holy every day in every moment of our lives. And Jesus intercedes for us constantly before the throne of God. His blood was shed once and is continually making us holy before God. And it's only through this that we can approach God as Abba, Daddy, our loving Father. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Well, we took a little bit of a look at the first covenant last week, and y'all found it a little confusing with all the temples flying around. So I made you a handout um, to compare 
the various covenants and the temples and the sacrifices that go with them. So if you start from the left, the columns are then, as in the old, uh, the, fir- the law, the first covenant. The second col- column is, is how it is now, okay, during, for the church, for Christians. The third column is how it will be in the millennial reign, and it's primarily directed at, at Israel because that's when they catch up with us. And then the last column is how it will be in the eternal order where all of us are together, the church and Israel. So if you look down the rows, the first row compares the covenants, which are essentially God's will and testament. The next row compares the sacrifices. The next row compares the state of man or what man is supposed to be doing during that time. And then the last row compares the temples. So under the old law, the covenant itself is in Genesis 22, 17, and 18. And it says that Abraham will have numerous descendants. His children will take over the cities of their enemies. And all the nations will be blessed because of Abraham's children. And in Deuteronomy 29, 13 through 15, God's will is stated. And that should look familiar to you. I am your God. You are my people. The sacrifices, as you know, under the Old Covenant are, the, are, are, you know, sacrifices of animals. And the death of those animals activates provisions of atonement in God's will. Okay? The animal death activates the provision of grace, mercy, and atonement that God set up in his law, in his will. Okay? It is an outward ceremonial cleanliness, so it has to get repeated all the time. Now, as far as man is concerned, God told him, follow the law, which we found impossible to do. And God's dwelling, as you know, was the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory entered the Holy of Holies, and it stayed there in that, in that temple or tabernacle until the time of the Babylonian captivity. But that meant that God was separated from man. He was separated both by that veil and by the mediator, who was the earthly high priest. Now look at where we are now. The covenant we're operating under now is, is uh, you know, scattered around throughout the New Testament, but um, I just selected excerpts for you, examples of that covenant. You'll recognize all of the pieces. The first one, of course, comes from the Old Testament, Psalm 110.4, where it says Jesus is our high priest forever in the, altar, in the order of Melchizedek. Luke 1.32 and 33 says Jesus, son of God, will be given the throne of David to rule forever. John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. It says, We're ransomed from the penalty of death due to our sins. And John 17.21 repeats that same will of God. We are in God just as Jesus is in God and God is in him. The sacrifice, obviously, was the death of Christ, and his death activated new provisions of atonement, which is inner holiness at this point, not just outer holiness. And there's no need for repetition. Our part is to hold fast to the end, encourage each other, teach each other, and be holy. Now, that's made possible through the Holy Spirit. Um, And it's only through the Holy Spirit that it's possible because to be holy is a higher standard than we would have been held to under the law. And the temple, 
although there were certainly more temples um, that we talked about last week. We talked about Zerubbabel's temple, um, and we talked about Herod's temple. By the time of, shortly after the time of Christ, that last temple, Herod's temple, was utterly destroyed, and destroyed, and there have been no more temples. And none of those temples had the Shekinah glory in them. The temple will be rebuilt either just prior or right at the beginning of the tribulation, and it will be destroyed halfway into the tribulation. The inner veil in the temple was torn. We know that from Matthew 27, 51, representing the fact that there no longer is a separation between God and man. God dwells in man as the Holy Spirit, even though some of us have rejected him. And the mediator, is our high priest, is now Jesus. In the millennial kingdom, you'll notice that most of the, the promises and rituals and things seem to be directed to Israel. And, and that, that's because this is like the great homecoming. The, the church is with Jesus now. Okay? We, 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 when we die, we are reunited with him physically. Okay? When, when he comes, we're coming with him. But when he comes, it's going to be a mega homecoming for Jesus and Israel. Okay, And so during that time, the covenant looks a little different. Jeremiah 31, 33, God will write his law on hearts, on their hearts and minds. Again, he says, they will be his people and God will be their God. Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. He's going to give an undivided heart and a new spirit in Israel. He will remove heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Israel will follow God's decrees and be careful to keep his laws. They will be his people and God will be their God. You see the emphasis on his law again with, with Israel. That it, it's, it's obviously going to be a new thing. It's not going to be because Jesus will be there. But he's relating to them on the basis of his law. This, there will be a new system of animal sacrifices. But Jesus is still high priest. He's high priest on earth. There is no manly high priest reinstated at that time. The, the, the sacrifices are still for atonement, according to Ezekiel chapters 40, 41, and 46. But if you read through those, you'll see that it appears to be focused on Israel's obedience to God. It's a sign of their obedience. And it, God sees it, uh, if you read Ezekiel 20, verses 40 and 41, God sees that obedience as a sweet fragrance acceptable to him. Man will have no need to teach each other because everyone, including all of Israel, will know God, according to Jeremiah 31 and 34. God's dwelling, Jesus actually physically dwells on earth as king and high priest, we, we have our uh, resurrected bodies, those of us who have already died and been resurrected. The, a new temple is built. The Shekinah glory returns to it, according to Ezekiel 43, 1 through 7. There are double doors on the Holy of Holies, according to Ezekiel 41, 23. And there is no mercy seat in the temple, no more an Ark of the Covenant, because one is not needed. And Jeremiah three sixteen says you won't even miss it because Jesus will be there. And finally, the eternal order, when we're all together, and this is after Satan and all the powers of darkness have been thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so this is the final, final, final version. 
this is the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, the covenant is, God will dwell with men. God will wipe every tear away. No death, mourning, crying, or pain. Everything will be made new. And again, he repeats, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see how that hasn't changed since the very beginning. No more sacrifices because there is no more death. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 tells us the last enemy to be conquered is death. And, and when that is done, the millennial reign will end and the eternal order will come. As far as man's concerned, those whose names are written in the book of life will dwell with God and the Lamb. All the others die the second death in the lake of fire, along with Satan. That's in Revelation 21 and 22. And finally, the temple. There is no temple, because God and the Lamb are the temple, according to Revelation 21 22. And therefore, there is no mediator. Knowing that, let's look at Hebrews 9, 15 through 21. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which, the, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. If you look back at the, you know, Old Testament scripture record of when Moses brought the commandments, you know, for one thing, it wasn't a scroll, it was on stone. But for another thing, it was, there's not a record of him doing this sprinkling thing. When it, the hyssop it's talking about is little branches and they would tie it together with scarlet wool, dip it in blood and water and sprinkle with it. Okay, that's what they would use to sprinkle. And there's plenty of scriptural record of that being done. It, there's just no record of it being done at the very first time. So obviously this is some oral tradition, okay, that the, that the Hebrews of that day believed this is how it happened, okay. But it's not contradictory to anything in scripture. That is, you know, if he was going to sprinkle something, that's how he would do it. And it, he was told to consecrate the people and the tabernacle, and it's possible that's exactly how he did it. Okay, it doesn't say how he was to do it. Verse 15 also tells us that Jesus' death set the Jews free as well, even those previously under the law. You might have missed that point. Look at the end of verse 15. He died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Were we ever under the first covenant? No. We, we've never been under the first covenant. Only the Israelites were under the first covenant. And he died to ransom them from their sins. So Jesus ransomed us all from death. And by his death activated a new covenant for all men. The, the writer of Hebrews here is using kind of a wordplay on the word covenant. Greek really doesn't have two different words for the idea of covenant 
versus will. The best definition that I saw in the, in the studies that I did was that the Greek word means an arrangement made by one party which the other party may accept or reject but cannot alter. Okay. So it's a here, take it or leave it kind of a, a document, which is exactly what a will is like if you think about it. Okay. And which is what God's covenants were like if you think about it. So this play on words, you know, really makes sense. And here the writer's pointing out the attributes of God's covenant with man that are related to it being an arrangement like a last will and testament that Jesus' death would have put into effect and if and that we have an either accepted or rejected choice. And if we choose to accept we will come into our inheritance. It's like we have this great big will, you know, where the, the, the most billionaire person in the whole world has left everything to us. Will we take it, you know? And if we say yes, we get our inheritance. That, that's what we're looking at here. Hebrews 9.22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And you know that from the beginning of the law, that's been the way it is. And it's not just the shedding of blood that's in view, view here. It's not, you know, cut your wrist. It's the giving of a life is what's meant. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. God in his grace right there in that verse, made it possible for our unintentional sins to be atoned for without requiring our own deaths. Jesus made it possible for our sins, our intentional sins, to be atoned for without requiring our own death. Verse 23 in Hebrews. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Well, that's a fascinating verse. We know the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly reality, and we know the earthly tabernacle needed to be purified. But not only did we not even think that there was a heavenly tabernacle, we didn't stop to think that it would have to be purified. You don't think of things in heaven as needing to be purified. But it makes sense when you think about it, we always think of heaven as being someplace solely good, where angels, you know, this is, this is the fairy tale heaven, where angels with wings flit around and play harps, okay? But real heaven is a place where evil can enter. Look at Job 1, 6, and 7. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So there you've got Satan in heaven. Job 2, verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. Luke 10, 17 and 18. The 72 disciples returned to Jesus with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, to fall from heaven, he had to be there first. And finally, in Revelation 12, 7 through 10, 
and there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon is Satan in, in this particular passage. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. All right. So Satan actually is in heaven. And if Satan is there, undoubtedly his demons are there. It actually said in that passage that they were there. His Satan and his angels were, were fighting in heaven. And, and their presence will continue until Satan is abound in the abyss during the millennial reign. Okay. Then he will, after that, he'll be released for a short time to play his part in bringing about the end of the old order. But right now, Satan is there accusing us day and night. So you have here a picture of Satan accusing us and Jesus interceding for us continually. Gives a little more meaning to that intercession. Yeah, that makes more sense. Doesn't it? Yeah. It does. So no wonder the heavenly tabernacle needed to be purified. Earthly and animal sacrifices could never have been enough mm -hmm. to do that. Only the sacrifice made by Christ could purify the heavenly things. Not only did he save us, he saved heaven. He, and let's read through the end of the chapter. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ, it's saying there, broke the cycle of sin, judgment, and death. Under the law, man must die and face judgment. But Christ died on our behalf. And now when he appears again, he comes, quote, apart from sin. Some of your Bibles will have that phrase. He comes without sin in the picture at all. He comes to bring our salvation. He comes so we can enter joyfully into our inheritance. 